Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Eric Meyer, an author, developer, and web consultant. He is a pioneer in using and thinking about cascading style sheets, or CSS, which is the way all browsers control how web pages look on your screen. He co-founded An Event Apart. He co-authored CSS The Definitive Guide. He created the CSS Reset and has participated as a champion of web standards for decades. He also has really good dad jokes on Twitter, so you should follow him there if you see that. I'm really excited to be talking with him today. Eric, welcome to the show. Hello. It's so nice to have you on. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Your Twitter profile, corduroys and headlines. Mm. <laughs> I love yes. it. Yes. Have you, so you've heard about corduroy pillows. Right. Yes, I have. Yeah. They're make they're they are making headlines. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's awesome. Thanks for being on the show. I'm I was so glad to see the email from you agreeing to be on the show. It's just awesome to have you here. Well, thank you. I'd love to start with where you are in the world today, where you're joining us for the show, and then talk about where you started out. Well, where I am today is in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is an inner rig suburb on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. And I've been working from home for <laughs> a long time. I was, I was remote working f- like from way before it was cool. Yeah, so I have a house and a yard and a family and all that stuff is where I am now. And have you always been in Ohio? Is that where you were born? No, actually. I've just been in Ohio for a very long time. I was actually born in Massachusetts, uh, but, and it, well, my family at that time, my, my, I'm, I'm the oldest child, so I was at that point an only child, and my parents were very mobile at that point. So I, had, I lived in a number of states that I don't even remember, mm. and then we lived in, we had moved to, basically my, my first memories are of Ohio, various places in Ohio. When I was five, we moved to a suburb of Chicago. And then when I was six, we moved to Lexington, Ohio, and stopped moving like that. My parents were just, they were done. They so, were done. Wow. Yeah. So we lived, yeah, we lived on the edge of Lexington for several years and then moved to the woods south of Lexington after that time. And that house still stands. And I came to Cleveland for college and never left. And you went to high school is I just in Lexington then? Yep, I did. So Lexington, Ohio, for uh, any listeners who are NASCAR fans, they already know where Lexington is because the Mid-Ohio Race Car Course is just outside of Lexington, Ohio. Oh. And uh, actually, so on race weekends, you could hear the, the, the cars. You could hear the, the, the engines. Yeah, the, the house where we moved to just south of Lexington was actually a little closer to Mid-Ohio, just not... That wasn't the reason we moved there, but that turned out to be the case. So we were close enough that it would be one of, you know, we would hear the engines and be like, oh, it must be a motorcycle racing weekend because you could tell from the pitch of the engines. I mean, I don't mind racing, but no, I'm not like, I don't follow it, that sort of thing. It's just, 
was part of the landscape pretty much. So, and for those who aren't NASCAR fans, Lexington, Ohio is just south of Mansfield, Ohio, which is almost precisely halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. So it's north central Ohio. So, okay, got it. Yeah. And you went to Lexington High School. What what was your high school experience like? Were you um, kind of prepping to be an English major in, in college? <laughs> no. Or was it was it something different? It was something very different. I mean, high school was all right. I did not have nearly as horrible a time of it as some people I know had of high school. That was junior high for me. Junior high was just a terrible, terrible uh. experience for me. But high school was okay. I, and I actually, I discovered, a few years later, when I was talking to some high school friends, I think I, I realized why. Because one of them said, the thing that, was, that always amazed me about you was that you just didn't care if you were popular or not. Like, it just didn't even occur to you to care. And I realized that's probably why I didn't ah. have a bad time in high school, because I wasn't all invested in the, well, what as adults we would call high school drama. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, you know, am I popular? Who likes me? Who doesn't? It was just like, like, I have my friends and I'm learning and that's fine. And I don't care about the rest of it. And I, I don't know. I'm I'm not. I don't have some like major life epiphany wisdom to impart to say this thing happened and that's why I didn't care. Just for whatever reason, I didn't. I mean, it did seem to work out. I, I'm sure that there are people who can be like that, and and high school is still a completely horrible experience for them. I don't want to correlate or causate there. I, it's a correlation, but I, I mean, I for me, it worked out. For whatever reason. <laughs> what did you want to be while you were in high school? What did you want to be when you yeah, grow up? So, yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. Seriously? But I did, yes. Like most kids. But I actually had a plan that did not involve becoming a fighter pilot. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing, right? At the, at the time, and we're talking the, when I was in high school, this is the 80s. Like, I was in high school when the Challenger exploded. Um, Ooh, 87. I, like, I, yeah. 80, 86. I clearly remember... Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I clearly remember that moment, though, when I found out. I was literally in, like, walking down the hallway of the high school when someone told me. And I didn't believe them at first. No, I wanted to be an astronaut. But at the time, basically, there were two ways to become an astronaut. It was to be a fighter pilot or a scientist. And I like science, so I decided that I would be an astrophysicist. And I would... Mm make my way onto a, uh, a shuttle mission by doing orbital astrophysics. That was that's, my plan. That's awesome. I, uh, I kind of landed in studying physics in college. I did not have a plan, but having a plan is so much better. So that, <laughs> that, that explains why you studied astronomy at Case Western Reserve University and English and AI. Yeah. So, and it also explains why I went to Case Western Reserve University. So, yes. I was looking for a science college, right? One where I could study physics with, you know, because you start in physics and then eventually, at least most, the way most people do it is you study physics in undergrad and then in graduate you choose a type of physics, uh, like astrophysics. I actually did apply to Williams College where they had an undergraduate astrophysics program. They rejected me. Um, but I had also applied to a few other schools, one of which was Case Western Reserve University. Um, which had a strong physics program. So I went to, to Case. They accepted me and I went. And I took, I was in the physics program for my freshman year. And at the end of that year, I said, this has been enjoyable. And this is, I do not want to do physics for the rest of my life. I just can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. 
Well, how did AI form part of that decision? Yeah. Well, so I, I, I knocked around through a few programs in my sophomore year and maybe a little bit my junior year. Um, and I took, I took undergraduate astronomy just because I still enjoyed astronomy. Like I didn't mind studying it in college. I just, it was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So I literally, because of my physics studies, my freshman year, all I had to do was take uh, a two semester sequence of astronomy classes and I had an astronomy minor. Great. Um, I, I knocked through the computer science department um, and took some programming classes. And then because of that, all I had to do was take a couple of AI courses and then I could have a minor in artificial intelligence, which I chose actually the philosophy of artificial intelligence. <clears throat> there was still some programming, but I, it's a philosophy of AI minor. And uh, I ended up in the history department. So I actually have a degree in history. The English is a, the English is a minor. Um, it's one short it's one class short of being a double major in English and history, but the only way I could have taken another semester, like a whole other semester of classes, I was like, no, <laughs> I, I can have my degree in four years. I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> um, so I took, I took the history with the very strong minor in English and the AI and astronomy were there. And I actually did do some graduate work towards a degree in English, uh, but I never finished them. I never finished the degree. Wow, what a what an interesting evolution in college, mm. going in thinking you were going to be an astronaut and coming out with a degree in history, and then working in computer science. So immediately upon graduating, I got myself hired as a as a part timer, um, a department of the university, uh, where my friend Jim Nauer, who's actually a had been a classmate, was working, and they needed somebody to do some hardware work. I had always I had been into computers since I was seven. Um, I was really lucky that way because for me, seven is like the late seventies. I was, I was going to say seven is pretty early, late in the seventies or early eighties. So what computer was it? Uh, I'm pretty sure the first one was a PDP 11 mainframe Ooh. and it happened through a, uh, like a computer summer computer camp kind of thing. Um, and I just, I happened to be in a place where. I mean, you wouldn't think in Mansfield, Ohio, that nobody's ever heard of. They were like, they had mainframes in? Yeah, they did. There was a there was a computer camp, and they had a mainframe, and I got to do a little basic. And then the school the, that I was in had like a TRS-80 Model 1 or 3 or something. And the high school had Apple IIs. And um, uh, I was enough into it that my parents got a TRS-80 color computer when I was about 9 or 10. I think, and within a couple of years, I had completely exceeded the capabilities of that system and convinced them <laughs> to buy a Commodore 64. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. And then before college, uh, I picked up a 286. No, it was, an, it was an 8086, an IBM PC 8086, but I got the, 8280, the 80286 processor upgrade card before I went to college, so I had an 8286. Was that a math coprocessor? No, I don't think so. That came later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was just a, this is a better CPU, so your computer will go faster, if I remember correctly. I mean, this is a long time ago, so someone out there might be going, yes, it was a math coprocessor. What's wrong with you? And what's wrong with me is that I am old and my memory is faulty. So, um, but yeah, I, th I think it was just basically a CPU bypass with a better CPU.
And so you essentially got a job at the place you were studying. Uh, so you were were you working and doing that English graduate studies uh, at the same time? Yes. So I had. I, I should also say I had been a computer lab monitor while I was an undergraduate through a uh, work program in that same department. So the department that hired me, like I'd been working for them, right, as a, as a part-time as a student. And then once I'd graduated, they hired me part-time as a as sort of a part-time full-time. It's like, well, you'll work 40 hours a week, but you won't have any actual benefits. Because <laughs> they could do that back then. Good. Well, they can do it now. <laughs> so I don't want to say the case does that now, but I mean, people do that now. It's, you know, at least it was a paid internship, basically. Yeah. I mean, they were paying me. It wasn't a lot, but they were paying me. Um, but uh, I got hired full time. And at that point, uh, tuition benefits kicked in. I could take a certain number of credit hours free per semester. And so I started doing the, the graduate work in the English program. Now, the title you had or have on your LinkedIn profile for your mm. work at uh, Case Western is Hypermedia Systems Specialist. Yes. That sounds amazing. I want that job. Yeah. Doesn't it sound great? <laughs> it sounds great. What, what was it? What were, you, like, what were your I was responsibilities? A webmaster. That's what it was. <laughs> I was a webmaster. And so when I was first hired, I didn't even remember if I had a title. When I was first hired full-time and they had to give me, I was like systems analyst one, right? It was some very generic thing. I think spring, early to mid-93 is when I got hired full-time, like actual full-time with benefits. And then uh, it was later that same year that I first encountered the web. Um, again, thanks to my friend Jim Nauer, um, who at, at that point we were, we were co-workers in the same department. Uh, he showed me an early beta of Mosaic, and I was just captivated. Mm. I had already come into contact with hypertext. It was doing DOS-based hypertext of the Ohio Revised Code, which is the complete set of laws for the state of Ohio. Um, I worked for a legal publisher in Cleveland that had the entire thing in a in a, in a um, on a CD-ROM, the entire Ohio Revised Code on CD-ROM, in a text format for for DOS computers. But there was hypertext, like you could put, you could drop codes in so that when one law referred to another law, the reference would be a hyperlink. You would hit the space bar and it would load that other, mm. that other thing, right? So, and I had read about hypertext. I had a into analog science fiction um, magazine, but they had some fact columns, and one of them was about hypermedia, about hypertext. Um, so I had been familiar with it, and I saw Mosaic. I was like, this is yes, this, this, this is awesome. Um, so I very quickly started doing web stuff and became the webmaster. And so we were like, okay, but webmaster doesn't, the university is never going to let you put that on a business card, right? They're, they're not going to let you just say <laughs> right. webmaster. That sounds like you made it up, which, okay, sure. Yeah. So we made up a different title that sounded more official and hypermedia system specialist was it. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So you were basically the were you was your email address webmaster at Actually, CW? No. no, I we may have had it as an alias. Uh, the so <laughs> um, we we called it. We had this we had this habit of giving projects project code names, sort of like the military and the government do. So we called it the Aurora Project mm -hmm. because of the <laughs> Aurora, the the supposed. Um, successor to the SR-71 was supposed to be called the Aurora. Oh. Um, 
So in the same way that the web was a successor to Gopher, this was a, uh, you know, the Aurora is a successor to SR71. Anyway, we called it the Aurora Project. So the email address was actually aurora at cwru.edu. And the, the design and the maintenance of the website, which was all static pages at that point, um, there was no CMS. And part of how I got to that position and that title was that we were setting up a web server for the departments of the university. You know, we went to every uh, department of the university and said, hey, so there's this web thing. Okay, well, then we explain what the web is. <laughs> and um, we have a server, and you can have space on it, right? You don't have to manage the server. We were already managing the server. We'll give you an FTP login. You can upload files. The only thing that we require is that you put a common header and footer on all of your pages that's, you know, common to the entire university. Between those two, you can pretty much do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't, you know, violate any laws. And so that's what I was, that was a lot of my job, was not answering email, although that was certainly part of it, but it was helping departments. And, and a lot of times departments would say, you know what, we don't want to manage it. You can set up some pages for us. That's fine. And so we would do that. Wow. So you were responsible for basically version one of the yep. website for the whole university. Yeah. Um, maybe version two. There was a version one website that, okay. So let me, let me back up to Gopher. So, some of you may not remember Gopher if you're listening to this. Gopher is prior like to the web. FTP. Well, it's, it's prior to the web. It's sort of like the web, except everything was text. There were, and if there, were, if there was an image, you would have to load the image separately. Which, to be fair, that's what the web was like originally, too. Embedded images didn't actually come along for three years. So Gopher was very much like a sort of a text mode browser, um, or a BBS, a bulletin board system. So it had this concept of things linking to things. And there was, for a while, you could, a lot of people who had Gopher servers would set up a web sort of portal slash interface. So it took those Gopher pages and turned them into web pages. So there was a version of that since the university had a Gopher server. The person who ran the Gopher server set up this web front end to it. Um, and so that was sort of version one of the, of the website. Um, when, it, when I uh, took over responsibility for it, we, we didn't do that. <laughs> we, we let Gopher be Gopher and web be web. So yeah, from, from version two onward, let's say. And the Gopher protocol is from the University of Minnesota, the Minnesota Golden Gophers. So that's why it was called that, was invented there. That's why it's called that, yes. And Gophers still running, I should point out. Go, there, there are still Gopher sites. Are they really? There really are. Oh, wow. I think I just found out what I'm doing for the rest of the afternoon. Awesome. <laughs> it's going down that deep rabbit hole. Or you're going, down, going down the Gopher hole. Going down the Gopher hole. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Glad I could help. It was all it was all tables back then, right? There was no CS CSS in in what you were working on at first, right? So when I started, there was no CSS. Everything everything presentational was baked into the markup. So if you wanted to do a, like a grid layout, then yes, you were almost certainly using tables. I mean, when I started, we didn't even have float or align, right? Like you couldn't <laughs> even align images to the side using the align attribute that Netscape introduced. 94, I think. I didn't actually use tables for layout. I resisted because I just did not. It didn't feel right. It felt 
icky and terrible and clumsy and gross. But I don't know how long I could have resisted that if CSS hadn't come along. Yeah, you wrote about how tables felt wrong to you, and and you ta- this was on the I think this was in the post about the 25th anniversary of working in CSS. Can you tell me about your first experience with CSS when you saw it at this conference and you were basically mesmerized, I would say, by it? Yeah, pretty much. I had gone to the second International World, World Wide Web Conference because it was held in Chicago, and my friend, again, Jim Nauer, and co-worker, had family in Chicago. So we drove to Chicago, which Cleveland to Chicago is eh, six and a half, seven hours, depending on the traffic, which to any European listeners will sound like, oh my God, you went to another country, but in America we call that, you know... I, I I went the next state over. It wasn't that big a drive, right? right? Like, <laughs> right. I just I live in a part of the U.S. where if it's under a seven-hour drive, then you drive instead of fly. <laughs> it's, it's just just how it is. Anyway, uh, so we drove to to Chicago, uh, crashed with his parents, um, and attended the conference. And then the fourth international conference had been in Boston. We actually flew to that one, a few of us. But the fifth international world worldwide web conference was being held in Paris. I had never been to Europe, let alone Paris, and I really wanted to go. So I figured if I get a paper accepted, the university will pay for my plane flight in my hotel and send me to Europe, and I get to see Paris. And it worked <laughs> somehow. <laughs> like I submitted a paper. Uh, the paper got accepted. I figured I'm going to sit in on the W3C track, like just find out what's coming next. Um, and one of the presentations was, so there's this new thing that we're working on called CSS and it's going to be in browsers and here are some examples. And one of the examples I, I just remember it vividly, um, which is weird because I'm, I'm, I'm actually aphantasic, so I, I don't have visual memory, but this I can, yeah. Anyway, there was this example where there was just a browser window with a white background, and I want people to remember, remember at the time, the browser background default was actually light gray, not white. There was this white background and a line of text, and then one of the words in the line of text was this huge blue text. So like if the, if the normal line of text was, let's say, 18 point, this was 108 point, right? Which is ridiculous. Like nobody would design a website like no. that. Right? It's a recreation of a print ad. But it was a recreation of a print ad, right? I mean, right, right. so far beyond anything that, I had, uh, that, that we could do. This is what, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. This is how we can do layout. Now, you know, I was maybe a little premature in that conclusion, but it's, a, it's at that sort of mesmerizing moment, like you said, that just that moment of certainty that I have seen something important and I want to be part of it. And then what led out of that conference? <laughs> it's a bit of a loaded question. <laughs> so what led out of that conference? Yeah, well, no, it's fine. Um, so again, I, di- I didn't do any CSS testing there because I didn't have a laptop because this is 1996. Laptops were huge and bulky and didn't last very long and like heavy to carry around. And so I didn't have one. I would I literally took paper notes. In fact, the because I was scanning it, the notebook is sitting here next to me. Um, so when I got home from Europe, <laughs> right, and took a day to recover from the lack of sleep and all that and got it back into the office, I was like, I have to try this, right? So I tried it. 
and nothing seemed to work. Right? Like I had a copy of the specification. I was like, okay, it says if I do this, this will happen. I did this, that didn't happen. Is it me? Like, am I not understanding? Or are the browsers just not where I think they are? It turned out mostly to be the second one. I, I you know, to be, to be clear, when I start learning a programming language, I make like nothing works and it's completely because I don't understand. Yeah. But this was that one of those moments in time where something was so new that it was actually more the tools were failing than I was failing. It was theory, right? Yeah. I mean, there were implementations, but there were a lot of bugs. There were a lot of gaps or a lot of holes. And I didn't know where the holes were. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to use this, I need to know what works. So I started building these little test pages. Like, just a page that says, you know, like, here's an element, and I put padding on it and did it lay out the way I think it should. And okay, that didn't quite work the way I thought it would. So let me do, let me expand that page so that this element just has top padding and this element just has bottom and this one has just right and this one has just left. And then I'm going to try the various ways of the shorthand padding values and see if it's all consistent, right? Because for all I knew, padding was fine, except there was a bug in bottom, right? And that was throwing things off. For Like, before I built the test, I didn't know. So I started building these tests. When I tried to do something, I would almost inevitably either need tests to figure out if I was doing it wrong or the browser was doing it wrong, or I would just be like, you know what, I'm just going to build a test page <laughs> because before I even try to use this. Because if I try to use absolute positioning and it turns out there's no absolute positioning, then all I'm going to do is spend a morning beating my head against the monitor before I realize, oh, it's just that the browser is ignoring me. Right. It's so that's right. Right. So you end up you end up having a whole suite of these tests. Yeah, I ended up with a whole set of test pages. I was on the, the WW style mailing list, which is where the working group members hung out and the browser makers and people who were interested in CSS. And so I emailed the chair of the working group, Chris Lilly. The session in Paris where I had presented my paper, he actually happened to be the chair of that session because each session actually had like three papers that were presented one after another. So for in an hour, each person would get like 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it was. So I, I sort of knew him like we had met in person and he was also the chair of the working group and I was really interested in this thing and I had so I emailed him and I said, hey, I don't know, maybe the, something like this already exists or whatever, but I, I put together these tests and I didn't know if maybe the working group would be interested. And he said, do you mind if I share this with the browser makers? And I said, no, not at all. Because um, oh. it turned out nothing like that existed, really. Um, maybe there was some stuff internally at, you know, at, maybe the people at Netscape had a few things they'd put together and the people at Microsoft had a few things they'd put together, but there was no like shared common resource. Test suites weren't a thing at that point. The W3C had never made one, apparently had not even really ever considered one. Um, you know, people weren't publishing them just wasn't a thing. And who were the major browser manufacturers at the time? Because it's a very different landscape than yeah. it is right now. I would say Microsoft and Netscape at that junction. And at that moment in time, Netscape had more of mar a market dominance than I think Internet Explorer ever achieved. Mm. Um, Netscape was literally like 95% of the browser market. A much smaller market, to be clear. Right? There were way fewer people on the web at that point. But... You know, Internet Explorer was this scrappy little 
edge, edge case upstart that that most snooty webmasters were like, oh, Internet Explorer. Here, here, here's a quarter kid. Download yourself a real browser, kind of deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of ironic because that's the attitude that Chrome users came to have years and years later. It's like, you know, what is Internet Explorer good for? Downloading Chrome, right? That's the. I've heard that joke more than once. They're like, the only reason Microsoft installs Internet Explorer on a on a. Anyway, this is the extra step to getting Chrome. Not really true, and. But there was that same attitude. Yeah. I mean, there was also Mosaic was still kicking around, but it was it was fading because it wasn't keeping up. My first browser was Emissary. Do you remember that browser? I'm not sure if I do. It was really tiny, really niche. It was the only thing we could get in South Africa. It was like, I don't know why, that's what everybody had. Emissary. And I... I yeah, and I think it basically died because something happened with Internet Explorer and there was a lawsuit or not exactly sure what happened, but it died. And and then I switched to Navigator. Yeah, Net, Netscape Navigator. I think 4. Yeah, uh, very, very likely 4. Yeah, 4 was the big one. My first version of Netscape Navigator was actually... Mosaic Navigator because they weren't originally Netscape Communications they were the Mosaic Communications Corporation and once again there was at least the threat of a lawsuit and so they had to change their name yeah. um, to something else they changed it to Netscape that was like 0 0.8 I think but anyway yeah Netscape 4 is when Netscape was at the height of its browser of, of its market dominance you share this test suite with the group, and then they invite you to be part of the group? Yeah, not, it's not an exact thing, but uh, I th it, it was a big reason, part of the reason why I was eventually invited. I mean, I was invited to join the working group as an invited expert because I, on WWW style, the mailing list, I made some sort of offhand, slightly snarky comment about how only the cool kids in the working group could answer certain questions. You know, or knew about certain plans or whatever, and I, you know, that wasn't me or whatever. And then Chris Lilly got in touch and said, "So we have these things called invited experts, and you could be one. Would you like to be one?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be one. Thank you." That wasn't what I was going for because <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. When I made the comment, I thought the only way that I could ever make that happen would be to get the university to become a W3C member, and. Uh, Becoming a W3C member is not cheap. It is a fairly substantial investment, even for a university, at least at the time. Um, I, I haven't looked recently, but it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per year. And I was like, I don't think the university is going to go for that. We don't do enough. Like, I'm really the only person who's doing any W3C type stuff here. Maybe I should have tried, and, and maybe I did, and I was quickly shot down, and I've forgotten, but whatever. I wasn't a member, right? I, and so I didn't even know that there was a way for me to be in. I was just being, I was being sort of, you know, offhanded about it. But yeah, that's, Chris was like, yeah, would you like to be a member of the working group as an invited expert? And I said yes. I would argue that the work you've done since then, um, the pioneering work you've done, like, shaped the internet, shaped the web, shaped the layout work that people are doing in browsers and how we think about the web and how we think about design across the globe. How does that make you feel? I feel gratified, but I also feel that that's a little bit of an overstatement. Yes, I contributed, but I was one of many. 
In, indeed. Indeed. But you were there. You were there. I was there. I contributed, right? Um, yes. You know, I created a test suite and that hopefully helped browsers get better faster. And I evangelized CSS and made it easier to understand. And hopefully that helped more people understand it. But I wasn't the only one. You know, there were people who had even been there before me. And there were people who were doing similar work um, at that time. Um, pretty much all the members of the CSS Samurai. My good friend Molly Holschlag was uh, was an early advocate. Oh, uh, Molly. Yeah, uh, Jennifer. She was then Jennifer Niederst. Uh, she's now Jennifer Robbins, uh, but the author of Web Design in a Nutshell for O'Reilly. We could take the rest of the podcast with me coming up with names, and I would still forget someone and then feel bad about it afterwards. But those are... You know, that, that's a that's a beginning of a sampling. Alora LeMay um, was also writing about HTML and CSS, stuff like that, um, around the same time. So, I didn't realize the very many connections you have. That That's amazing. I grew up in South Africa watching the web from what I felt like was the outside. And seeing the working groups and seeing the participants and seeing all these names for so long, it just... It just used to feel so unattainable and far away. And once I decided that I wanted to work in this industry and make a living out of it, it just, it kind of broke down all those barriers. I kind of feel like, wow, these are just all people that... All people. That all contributed to this shared goal, to this shared vision. And what a wonderful thing we can do as humans when we put our minds together. I mean, we're all just folks. Pretty much. Exactly. And I mean, even at the time, some of the email that I was getting to my personal address would be people who would say things like, you know, how do I do what you're doing? And I'd be like, do it. Right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Just do it. <laughs> right. I mean, kind of. It's like, there's no society to get a membership card from. There's no, and he's just published stuff and it's the web. You can do that. And, you know, I, yes, there are barriers, certainly. If you're in a situation where you have low bandwidth, you know, sipping the internet through a cocktail straw, as we used to say. Awful. I can identify with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be a problem. And you had to be able to get your stuff onto a web server, which either meant you needed to set one up or you needed to have access to one. Um, if you wanted a domain name, like in the late 90s, domain names, like .com, way more expensive than they are now. Like, you know, a few hundred dollars at least. And that's... You know, once you account for inflation, you're talking mid hundreds in in today's figures. And you can only get it at one place, right? There's not like a yeah. vast amount of people you can buy it from. Yeah, maybe maybe one or two, um, right? And so, you know, in today's dollars, getting a .dot com address might be four or five hundred dollars, right? And at the whatever the figure was at the time, right? So, there certainly were barriers. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time. If you could figure out, you had a friend who worked at a hosting company or, or you had a hosting company near you that you could hook, you know, connect with and, and, and get some space. You know, GeoCities came along later. A lot of people used places like Angel Fire and GeoCities, which are these huge, you know. We're, we're basically doing it on, on a commercial level and a commercial scale what I was doing at the university, basically saying, here's your, you know, FTP account that has this many megabytes of of space and you can put whatever you want in it, right? So, um, but what if you could do that, then, you know, just, just do it. And, you know, few source and, you know, here's the, here are the specifications that I read to figure out HTML and CSS and read those. That's, you know, literally what I did, so. Wonderful. Yeah. 
And 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 we were always it was always a you know everyone to the table come on everyone can everyone's allowed in this pool right there's and that 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 ethic which which I kind of I wasn't around for the sort of the 60s and 70s Unix hacker ethic but I feel like there are at least some similarities and there was there was definitely at least for me and I think for most of the people that I can remember, because they're the people who I connected with, um, there was a real strong ethic of um, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and it's our duty to provide our shoulders for the next people, right? So, I, you know, the people who came before us shared what they knew, and we learned from that, and so now it's our turn to share what we know so that people can learn from that, and then they can share what they know. And we can keep doing that. Yeah, keep doing that. the The goal was always to advance the whole, not to advance the individual. I mean, sure, a lot of us were very successful in various ways. I know several people who, you know, went to work for startups and got cash outs, and they like only work because they want to. At this point, I was not one of those people, sadly. Um, well, not sadly. I still like working, and I would still work even if I, you know, literally didn't have to. But um, you know, there was still that, you you know. You give the information away, basically. You share it. And that's still, I'm, I mean, I'm still doing that. I mean, yes, I write books, and the books cost money. I also, you know, I, I write a lot of um, articles um, from my own site or for other sites that, that don't have paywalls. You know, create tools and throw stuff out into the world just, you know, just in case anyone's interested in using them. And, yeah, it's just, it's part of that same that same ethic of, you know, and Unix is a lot of that, right? Like a lot of the Unix command line utilities, somebody just wrote it, wrote the program, and then it became part of Unix. And so, you know, there's there's sort of a, an ethos of if you're if you write a command line tool that you find super useful, offer it up to the world. Maybe a bunch of other people will make it useful. And yeah, same thing. Yeah. So after that fateful conference, you were back at Case Western, and yeah. you. You got involved in the Web Standards Project, and you'd mentioned CSS Samurai a few moments ago. Tell me about that. Who founded that? So that was uh, John Alsop, a software developer in Australia, who's who's still very active. So the Web Standards Project was launched, and I was I very quickly joined up because I was I had the same sort of problems, right? Like I had been writing these test suites to figure out why browsers didn't agree. And then I had started publishing compatibility information to, to let other people know when you try to use this property and it doesn't work in th you know two of the five browsers at your university, this is why, right? <laughs> or uh, wherever you are. And so I was totally on board with the yes, browsers should all agree. I like, I wanted to be out of that job. The testing browsers and documenting what they supported and what they didn't in CSS, I didn't want to have to do that job anymore. I wanted it to just all work and nobody would need a compatibility table. But the steering committee or whatever it was called, the people who basically formed and launched the Web Standards Project started creating action committees. So there was a Dreamweaver accessibility task force at one point, um, but there, there was also a CSS action committee, which John Alsop was asked to head. And so John reached out to some people, and we eventually ended up with seven people in the action committee. So seven samurai. We called ourselves the CSS Samurai. Nice. And how long were you with the group? I mean, I never really left. My active involvement was pretty much from right after it launched. 
until uh, the early 2000s. Probably right around 2000, I think. Because the CSS Action Committee basically fulfilled its mandate and at some point called it a day. We didn't feel like we had anything more to say at that point. So we stopped. And the Web Standards Project eventually sort of came to the same place. And would you say that CSS still has a ways to go in terms of uh, standardization across browsers? Or do you think that we're in a good place now? Uh, both. So as compared to when I started, we're in paradise, basically. <laughs> um, there's so much consistency. And yes, I'm not here to say that all browsers are perfectly in concordance and everything works exactly the way you think it should at all times in all situations, right? There are, these are highly complex systems. There are always going to be bugs. Um, but the bugs get fixed quickly, relatively, usually. And things like the web platform tests, which are in some ways a descendant of the CSS test suite, although they're much more than that. Those things help the browsers stay very much in alignment. Generally these days, if you have a problem with something in CSS not working cross-browser, it's generally because one of whichever browser it's not doing the right thing in just hasn't implemented that feature yet. So there was a time where if you tried to use Flexbox, it only worked in a couple of browsers and in other browsers just hadn't started. But Grid is a better example. Right? Grid basically dropped in all the major browsers in the space of a month which still astonishes Whoa. me. Yeah. April 2017, basically. Um, it was just bam, 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 bam. And that was in part because of the web, perform web platform tests, and it was in part because, you know, the schedules managed to align together. But um, whatever the reason, those all dropped basically together. Sure, there are bugs, but bugs the bugs that get reported in grid layout get fixed, right? And right now... The situation is if you try to use subgrid, which is super cool, it'll work great in Firefox, which has implemented subgrid. Chrome and Edge, Chromium hasn't yet. They're close, but they haven't done it yet. You can use subgrid uh, in a progressive enhancement way, but you can't use it in like a every browser will act the same way, right? You have to you have to take that progressive enhancement spirit, which I'm 100% for, but that's required. It has to be a, I'm going to use subgrid so that in browsers that understand subgrid, this will be a little bit better and it'll be nicer and more reliable and more, more sort of robust. And in browsers that don't understand subgrid, it'll be okay, right? It won't, it won't like break the page. So, and subgrid's supposedly coming soon. I can make no promises. Um, good. So good. don't, uh, don't um, make investment decisions based on that or whatever, but that's what I'm told. And, uh, and subgrid and Chromium, more to the point, is what I what I, what I what I hear, but I'm not part of the Chromium development team. I don't work at Google, so I cannot speak officially for that. Of course, I wanted to ask about the CSS color sixty six thirty three ninety nine. It's in the standard. Why is Rebecca purple, which is the name for that color, so special to you? Um, is his name for my daughter, uh, specifically my late daughter. My daughter, Rebecca, was diagnosed with what turned out to be aggressive brain cancer when she was five and a quarter. And I chronicled some of that journey through my blog, through my website, MeyerWeb.com. And uh, she died uh, June 7th, 2014, which was also her sixth birthday. 
And um, I mean, I shared that too because I had been sharing the, the journey. So what happened was we, when we put up the obituary and we said, you know, the service will be this Thursday, June 12th, people who attend are encouraged to wear purple or other favorite color because purple was Rebecca's favorite color. Um, and she loved color. She just loved mm-hmm. bright colors. She loved wearing bright colored dresses and um, all that sort of thing. And we just, we felt like we didn't want people to think, oh, we have to show up all in black. It's like, you know, show up, wear purple in her honor or wear your favorite color. That was, that was the whole reason. But Matt Robin, I believe, said, you know, we should all turn our avatars purple on the 12th. And mm-hmm. he, he might have suggested... 663399 as, as a color to use so that there was sort of a commonality. But that quickly snowballed into people saying there should be a CSS named color called Rebecca Purple. Well, the people saying a CSS named color called Becca Purple because Becca was what most people called her. I was the only one who ever just used her full name all the time. Um, and uh, it quickly snowballed. Um, it became a hashtag 663399. Becca, and um, I guess it, it happened. <laughs> People did it. I mean, I was I was at the funeral, so I, I wasn't super online that day. But um, mm. uh, then uh, it was proposed to the W3C, the CSS Working Group, as 663399 should be called Becca Purple. The Working Group got in touch with me and asked me if this was okay. <laughs> and I said... It's okay. I can understand why people might object on process grounds or, you know, on the the grounds of this is not a thing we've ever done before, whatever, right? Like, if it happens, that's fine. If it doesn't happen, that's also fine. But if it does happen, Rebecca told us when she turned six, she wanted everyone to call her Rebecca because Becca is a little baby name. Mm. So I said, if if this happens, it has to be Rebecca Purple. That's the only condition I have. And I'm fine with it either way, right? Just if it happens, it has to be this name. And it happened. It happened really fast. It was added to browsers practically by before June was over. And now people find out about it because in browser dev consoles, when you type color and then you start to type red, the R-E... Oh, it's R-E-B. Because Rebecca, R-E-B comes before R-E-D. So Rebecca Purple is the first thing in that list before you type the D for red. And so people find it, and occasionally people will wonder where that name came from. And so they'll start searching, and they'll find out about it. And then occasionally I'll get email. More likely, more often I'll see things on Twitter, you know, people saying, I just learned this story. So that's, yeah, it's... um. I don't, even to this day, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to say about any of it, really, in, in some sense. Like, I could, I could talk about it at length, and yet when people say there are no words, they're right. There are no words. And there when people words. say I can't understand it, I tell them I, I don't understand it either. <laughs> and I lived it. And I still, it's just some things can't be understood. They just they have to be survived in some cases. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing, Eric, and thank you for telling the story. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I, I watched, I watched it online, and you have an effect on people when you talk about it, and I think it's a positive effect. And I, I, uh, I very much appreciate you sharing. I'm grateful that you were able to do that in whatever capacity you've been able to do that. And it, um, I'm sorry for your loss. Well, thank you, and I appreciate you asking. And I do have to say. As much as I wish, as, mu as much as I would wish that Rebecca Purple never was a thing, never had to be a yeah. thing, right? It's an amazing moment of community. It, it, when I think about it, it reminds me that this is a community. It's not just an industry. It is a community. Um, and a com communities are made of people. I mean, industries are made up of people too, right? But it's a community made up of people and people decided to do this. And some people objected, and I, I, if any of them are listening now, I bear absolutely no ill will. The objections were grounded in, in rational grounds. I get it. If the working group had said, you know what, no, the CSS specification is not a place to honor people. There are other places to honor people. I would have one hundred percent accepted that. Um, and it's st I still would have the same feeling, right? That the community organized to do a thing. And that's how almost all of this happens. It's not a case of us in the community waiting for the W3C and browser makers to bestow their gifts upon us. That's not how this works. It's the mm. community. The community says, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes it could take a long time, don't get me wrong, right? People said for 20 years, mm -hmm. CSS is a presentation language, but it's not a layout language. We use it for layout, but it doesn't have a way to describe layout. And we need layout. It took 20 years for Grid to answer that. But it happened, and it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the community saying over and over and over again, we, we actually want a layout language, not just a presentation language. That's where we got. And like I say, it took forever. It doesn't always take that long, <laughs> but sometimes it can. For that matter, the community around preprocessors, right? Less and SAS and those sorts of things. People create mix-ins and extensions and do stuff using the programming features that are built into those preprocessors. And then a working group, sometimes when a thing becomes popular enough, will standardize it, right? CSS variables is an example. Color mixing, what a color function? Yeah, color functions. The working group is working on color functions. So you can do things like tint or shade or otherwise modify a color without having to supply a raw color. You can say, take this red and make it 40% lighter using a color function. That's been in last SAS whatever for quite a while now. Uh, mm -hmm. And in popular enough that the working group has said, yeah, we should do that thing. That should be built into the language. It's amazing when the community comes together and functions like that. It's, it's just so wonderful to see. One final question before we wrap up. What's keeping you busy these days? What's interesting? What are you looking forward to? Well, I just, well, I didn't just start anymore, I guess. Um, what I'm looking forward to is the work I'm doing at Agalia, um, which is a, an open source software consultancy based in Spain. Um, most people are probably unfamiliar with that name, um, but remember when I was talking about how CSS Grid dropped in a bunch of browsers at once? Mm -hmm. uh, Agalia mostly wrote the Grid layout for Chromium. They're a big part of the reason why that happened. Um, because Bloomberg, the financial business, wanted a grid layout. 
and there were grid specifications, right? But it needed to be implemented. And so Bloomberg hired Agalia to do that because Bloomberg couldn't hire, hire Google. Bloomberg has a lot of money, but not that much. <laughs> so okay. they hired Agalia <laughs> and people at Agalia worked on that um, and, and helped make that happen. And, you know, so I started working for them in mid-February. I'm doing a lot of uh, documentation, a lot of standards work. I just rejoined the working group. Thanks to Agalia being a W3C member, they appointed me to the working group. Yay! <laughs> Yay, I'm back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, <laughs> what do nice testing circle. again. What a wonderful full circle. Time is a flat circle. What are you going to do? Anyway. That's awesome. So you're looking forward to being part of the working group again, and you're doing this wonderful work with Agalia. That's awesome. And uh, I'm looking forward to college tours with my soon-to-be senior in high school teenage daughter. We're doing that this summer. Looking forward to our youngest, who's uh, going into fifth grade, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot going on, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh looking forward to summer. Yeah, I am too. No masks. The pandemic's winding up. It's it's hopeful. Right. It's and hopefully hopefully it'll cool down a little bit for you because it's been super hot. I hear. Yes, it has. Minneapolis has been insanely hot for the last week or so. It's not. It's not uh, a, a million degrees and full of cicadas. So there's that. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for your time today, Eric. It's been so amazing talking to you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Eric Meyer is an author, developer, web consultant, and champion of web standards. You can find him online at MeyerWeb.com, which has been around in one form or another since the 90s. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>